Welcome to the Media Navigators podcast brought to you by the World Media Group. My name is Belinda Barker and I'm the Chief Executive. The members of the World Media Group are all award-winning global journalism brands, the real greats of journalism, who put governments, businesses and others under scrutiny without bias or fake news. When you navigate such prestigious brands, they can be viewed externally as being traditional. They're not the new kids on the block. However, the reason the members of the World Media Group continue to be so successful is that they are constantly, quietly, strategically innovating and evolving. So today I'm gonna talk to Alex Wood, who is the Managing Director of Forbes Europe. Morning, Alex. Hi, good morning, Belinda. How are you today? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Um, Some of the listeners may have an outdated view of Forbes and perhaps picture Warren Buffett as an example of an average reader which doesn't mean that Warren doesn't read Forbes, but an old, corpulent, corporate white American man is not the whole story. You are perhaps a perfect example in yourself of how Forbes has changed. When we were chatting before we started recording this podcast, I thought it was really fascinating to find out how you first connected with Forbes and that they actually contacted you, dare I say, on your 30th birthday um, <laughs> to be one of their, on their 30 under 30 list as an entrepreneur. And unfortunately, because it was your 30th birthday, you were unable to accept. But that says an awful lot about who you are um, and and the kind of the direction of of the Forbes brand. Um, can you tell us just a little bit more about uh, about the company you 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 had started um, and why Forbes um, were actually went on from trying to extract you from thirty under thirty to in fact buying buying your company. My my story very much is uh, intertwined into Forbes and the under 30 community. As you mentioned, um, Forbes called me up um, on my 30th birthday, um, wanted me to be on the list. Unfortunately, I was just that tiny bit too old by a matter of uh, days, I think, really. But um, the, the company that I started that really caught Forbes' attention, which is why they had got in touch um, with interest for me to be on the list, was called The Memo. And The Memo was my own media startup. It's an online magazine founded in 2015 with a simple mission to make the future more human. And what that really means is it's a magazine that reflected the times we were living in, where technology, innovation, startups, artificial intelligence, all of these things that we interact with every day are moving so, so fast. And I'm a technology journalist by background. And over the course of the first sort of 10 years of my career, I really noticed that actually the digital revolution was leaving some people behind. And these are people who were very senior, people who are very influential in the business world, who wanted to understand how change was happening and wanted to understand how to use it to their advantage, to gain competitive edge. 
and and really be part of that revolution. So the memo was a deliberately non-techie sounding name for a technology magazine that spoke to everyone and anyone. Um, I hadn't realised that they'd actually bought the kind of the memo on board as to be part of the, the Forbes suite uh, and, and it still um, exists today. Um, how, how does it fit within Forbes and, and is it still being successful? So the memo lives on um, as a brand, as a newsletter at, at Forbes. And that's partly because the memo's newsletters were some of the most successful products that we had going directly into people's inboxes. I know, you know that's, that's no news to you and I today. You know, newsletters are such an important part of any global media strategy. But um, back when we started in 2015, I think in many ways we were ahead of the curve in terms of the importance of newsletters. So my, my memo newsletter goes out to around 50,000 subscribers every week on Saturdays from Forbes. And it really is a curation of um, the top global trends and future trends across Forbes. So it's Forbes content. Um, and it still contains some of my favorite pieces that we had um, from the memo uh, V1, um, which is that I, I strongly believe that business journalism can also be fun. It can also have a bit of lifestyle. So I, I, every week I like to recommend a podcast, something to watch on streaming media, a book, something to download. And pre-pandemic, a restaurant recommendation as well, but um, I had to put those um, slightly on hold for the last year. Um, so it does it does live on in that sense. But um, in terms of the acquisition, the whole team came across with me. But uh, we also put the back catalogue of all of our content onto Forbes, so it does mm -hmm. still live on. And some of the franchises that we worked on um, have have continued on. So, for example, we've done um, reviews of mobile banking apps, and um, I think a lot of the spirit still lives on. But the actual product as a day-to-day -day publication has been completely subsumed into Forbes. I feel enormously guilty that I have um, only just today subscribed to, to the memo, but I, I will, I'm sure, become an avid reader going forward. Um, uh, I, hope, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> um, last year, you made an unusual transition because you know, you, you were the editor uh, for Forbes Europe. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure how familiar people who, who are outside of the, the immediate media industry is aware of, of, you know, the church and state relationship. It, it is relatively unusual for editors to, to move across in, into what tend to think of as the dark side the commercial dirty money where we all we all get our hands and feet de dirty um so what i mean i i realize that you were obviously an entrepreneur anyway you you do have you know business experience but but what made you make that change then i think um to answer your question i think i, I want to share a reflection as someone who's been in the business now for getting on for about 15 years, uh, I've always felt really strongly throughout um, some of the most disruptive periods in our ind industries ever seen um, with, with digital and the transformation we've had, that people, um, particularly on the editorial side of the business, need to appreciate the business side more and need to have an appreciation and understanding of how we all eat. And that's something that I share every year with my students at City University, where I, I teach at the journalism school there, and, I, and that's something that I've taken on board throughout my whole career. I've had a curiosity 
in how we work with our partners and, and how we can maintain that editorial independence, because that is at the core of what is important for any media business. But also fundamentally understanding that I think they can be very complementary, the relationships as well. And I think the more and more that partners are working with media um, organizations directly um, and creating tighter partnerships, more creative partnerships, is something that's always been really exciting and interesting to me. So when the opportunity came up um, to make this transition uh, a year, almost a year ago, it was really exciting for me. And obviously it is a big jump. Um, and I think it's taken me some time to really navigate that and understand what that means for me. But Forbes is also, I think, a wonderfully innovative organization and they've allowed me to still keep some creative avenues and some editorial avenues that are important to me. For example, the newsletter, I'm involved in video series as well. And I think what I'm really bringing to Forbes at the moment is quite a refreshing, um, unusual take within the revenue side of the business. Um, my my boss, Jess Sibley, who's the chief revenue officer, I think really appreciates that I, I'm coming from an edit editorial mindset. There are very few people um, on this side of the, the wall um, in Forbes who understand edit the editorial side so well. It means I can speak to our partners with such confidence and such deep knowledge of exactly the workings of the great product that we're really trying to sell as well. So I think while it's not a usual transition, I think it's um, been really successful for us so far. Yeah, you, you're right. And partnership with, with clients is, is becoming more and more important in, uh, at the moment. Um, I'm going to come across as slightly fangirly here, but... Um, okay. okay. <laughs> you're... You really do have an incredibly impressive kind of CV. You know, you're you're a millennial who's what was it? You've edited, written in in Japanese, so when you you've got fluent Japanese, uh, you set up. You're an entrepreneur setting up your own business. You've been an editor. You've been you're the managing director of, of a, a massive global um, media brand. You're a professor. Of journalism, oh, visiting lecturer. When... I, I'm yes. I, I wouldn't take professor just yet, okay. but yes, I'm a visiting Le lecturer. lecturer. Sorry, lecturer yes. in, in journalism, in, in kind of in in your spare time. Um, how do you manage all of that? It's just. Um, is it just being millennial? Have you got have you got kind of an extra ten hours in your day that none of the rest <laughs> of us have? It's, it's funny you're mentioning the term millennial, actually. I, I've, I've Something that's popped up in the news today that is, is irritating me a lot is this new term. Have you heard geriatric millennial? Uh, <laughs> no, I a, a, a hateful term, um, which unfortunately I actually fit into. It is, it's the older end of the millennial bracket. So I was born in 19, 1985, which apparently I'm just into the geriatric millennial term. But Actually, as much as I hate the term and I hate all of the, the quick takes that lots of people have done already today on it, it maybe does describe my own experience, which is that one typical factor of that gen so-called generation, it's, it's a made up thing, is that we actually sit very neatly between the digital natives but who are younger than me, who have only known social media and mobile phones, whereas I actually am a bridge generation. So the generation before me um, actually had technology come much later in their lives, whereas I can remember a time when I didn't have a computer. I remember getting the internet when I was 11, 12. I remember my first mobile phone. And I think one of the interesting arguments about that generation is that we understand both sides and we're actually very good translators to either side. 
And I think that maybe that's been something that's helped me to be as successful as I've been um, so far in my in my career is actually when I've been walking into my first ever um, job as a, as a trainee at a Japanese newspaper. I was pretty tech savvy even then. Um, and also doing it in Japanese as well was incredibly tough. Um, but I think that that experience of starting my career in a different language in a different country um, also has a huge impact on you because you have to almost think two steps ahead and try and be culturally aware and try to understand the context of what's going on. And so reflecting on it, I think that has given me maybe a lot more energy and a lot more excitement and enthusiasm because, you know, I, I've, I've shared with you before, and I've, I've been going to Japan since I was 12 years old. I, I studied Japanese in secondary school and I went to Japan on a plane by myself when I was 15 years old um, and wow. spent the entire summer there by uh, on a peach farm near Mount Fuji. I mean, <laughs> when I tell people this, people think my mother was probably quite irresponsible to sort of pack me up onto a plane. Um, but I think, you know, I, I love the spirit of adventure. and I love, idyllic. you know, discovering things. It, it, it was idyllic. It really was. Um, <laughs> and I think, I, I, you know, it's, it's a lot of luck as well. And I think um, it, it's, it has been a, a ton of work. But I think it's 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 really I, I feel very blessed because I feel like the industry. I mean, for example, when I started um, at City University as a student, um, when I came first came to London to do my postgrad in journalism, the entire year was about doom and gloom, and you will never get a job, and you know everything was closing, and that narrative still persists even today um, on the editorial side. And actually, it sort of like made me ten times more determined to say, no, I I, I see opportunity here. I see you know, tech companies and new media companies growing, and that's where I want to put my energy. So we talk rather a lot about about you, as I said, a bit of a fangirl. But let's let's focus back on on Forbes and go back to the kind of the 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 stuffy white men that we kind of talked about in the um, introduction. Um, so can can you give us a more realistic picture of of who the readers are of of Forbes and and what are what are they interested in? I mean, I'm I'm assuming it's not all about you know, it's not everything is all about stocks and shares. You know, they have other interests as well. I think one of the things that may surprise surprise you off the bat is that the uh, majority of our readers are actually female. Um, we we have a majority female audience at Forbes. Many people are surprised to hear that. Um, ever so ever so slightly over the fifty percent mark, but still. Um, and when I look at it in terms of pure audience trends, as as an editor over the last three years, I'd say speaking for our European audiences uh, and our global audiences. Um, we have a much larger, larger readership in tech than people realize. Actually, tech is a, is a very large part of our of our audience and our traffic. But really, to answer that question, I think we have to look back at what Forbes was at its heart when it was founded over 103, almost 104 years ago now. Um, it, it, it was created as a magazine for people who were aspirational and people who wanted to um, use what we believe is the best system of, of uh, governance and the best system of statehood, which is capitalism and entrepreneurial capitalism, to better themselves. And actually, I, I point you to one great example on the first cover of Forbes magazine, where it actually had one of one of the uh, stories of note was about um, women in business and female entrepreneurship all the way back over 103 years ago. And wow. so, yes, and I think and I think while people may have that perception, 
you know, I, I'm, you know, I'd be lying if I if I didn't say that when I first went to the New York office, I was expecting some like wood paneling, you know, and some, you know, maybe some cigars or something. But it couldn't be further from the truth because actually at its heart, and you, you would hear this kind of message from Randall Lane, our chief content officer, from Steve Forbes, from the, from the Forbes family as well. Fundamentally, people who believe in entrepreneurial capitalism, it, it needs to better everyone, and it needs to be the level leveler. It needs to allow everyone to rise up, and so. Actually, yes, it's about wealth, but it's also about aspiration. And it is about inclusivity at its very heart. Now, every single media brand out there is striving to be better. And we've made some really big changes in the last sort of five years or so. But I would also argue that actually in the experience that I've had in-house and also what we put as an output, as an organization, it is a lot more diverse than people realize. So you, I think when we were... um talking earlier you were you you have a very specific focus or, or around sustainability at, at the moment um is there anything more you can tell us about that yeah so sustainability um putting my own personal cards on the table uh, excites me greatly um and i the, the thing that makes me so excited about it is actually the business opportunity because i, I believe there is a ton of money to be made here but it's also money for good it, it is impact investing if you like it is uh investing with purpose and uh, at Forbes, my sort of enthusiasm for it comes from looking at the audience data over the last three years. Um, globally, we could see that our readers were just more and more interested in what was happening in sustainability. We see it from our under 30 community as well. It won't surprise you to hear that that segment are very pro-green, very pro-change. And um, so I've really been championing and I've been really proud to see that we've launched um, our new Forbes Sustainability Initiative uh, around Earth Day this year. And um, like so many of um, the partners that we have at World Media Group and our other peers, you know, we're all investing in sustainability. Um, but something that I'm personally really proud of to see from Forbes is that it's not been an overnight thing. It's actually been something that we've been working on for the last three years in terms of building. We have over 40 expert contributors from across the world who've been writing about sustainability, mm-hmm. new video series, new initiatives. We have a new partnership with um, Hitachi ABB Power Grids, our first partner who came on board for the launch of it as well. And um, honestly, I'm I'm really excited to see what we do with it. And obviously COP26 coming down the line as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think that um, the business opportunity here is going to be so, so huge. And Forbes is probably uniquely placed in that sense that as I'm, you're probably hearing the more I describe it, that we are so much broader than people realize with that tech aspect as well. There's no other magazine that really on the one hand is looking at like AI and blockchain, what that means, sustainability, all the way up to diversity, equality, inclusivity at the other end of the spectrum as well, business leadership, all these different facets, bring them together with sustainability. And I think it's quite a unique offering. I know this is slightly off topic, or maybe it is, it isn't, but COP26 is obviously not not that far away and and over here rather than over there. Uh, uh, By that, I mean in the UK rather than America. Um, uh, Do you have any sense of of the outcomes from COP26? Do you actually think it's going to achieve anything? It's a very good question. I wouldn't like to sort of look into the crystal ball and say there's going to be, you know, some binding targets or uh, I think my gut sense is you only have to look at what Biden did in his first 100 days of his administration, really 
pinning the U.S. to some for the U.S. some very aggressive targets and some very aggressive changes. And something that I've shared with my colleagues in the in the U.S. before, and I've talked a lot about this in my newsletter as well, is you really have to follow the money when you look at um, an, an issue like this. And when the European Green Deal was announced um, by Ursula von der Leyen last year, by some measures we are looking at up to a trillion euro over the course of the time for this thing. You know, this is not an insignificant amount of money. The same with Biden as well. And I think when you start to have these different pieces come together, suddenly events like COP26 become a lot less of a talking shop and a lot more action as well. And you look at the kind of companies and partners that are involved in that summit and you look at the amount of energy that's going towards it. I mean, you know, on a very anecdotal level, you only have to look at the number of electric cars that are being launched this year as well. I really do feel like the the momentum is there and I feel like business is behind it as well and the consumer interest is there. And I think all those pieces are coming together. So I can't give you a kind of headline stat or, you know, something kind of punchy to say it will be announced, but I do think it'll be a moment. It will be a marker for change. Um, so we, we are hopefully... Um, Today, I should say the date, today is the 20th of May, uh, because obviously everything might be completely different, read the pandemic by tomorrow, but let's, let's as it is of today, we, we seem to be moving on a positive trajectory. Um, the last 18 months have been, um, on the one hand, uh, quite traumatic, um, but on the other hand, um, it has uh, it has fostered enormous amounts of of innovation, um, both within the, the the marketing industry with all sorts of different businesses, um, growing new businesses that that we were didn't even exist eighteen months ago. Um, looking forward for the next 12 months, um, where do you anticipate, do you anticipate the level of change to, to continue or, or are we going to go into a period of kind of, of, of uh, you know, uh, pulling, well, not pulling back, but just, you know, ho holding strength? Um, and where do you see more change coming from? Are there any particular areas that, that you think are, are, the ones to watch? I think, um, again, I always seem to come back to technology with this enthusiasm excitement, but you, you look at the fact that we're recording this podcast together and it's not a problem at all to be doing it remotely. And I, you know, I recorded a podcast with Forbes two and a half years ago and it used to require about an hour of setup and getting mics and having to meet in a physical place. I mean, you have to celebrate these small yeah. wins that things have got so much <laughs> better. But um, one example I think really ref reflects this nicely is events, um, such an important part of the commercial model for, for media at the moment. And like so many businesses, Forbes had a huge challenge um, when, when it, the world locked down. And what we really did, I think, was incredible, um, was our pivot towards virtual events. Now, we're not the only business to do this, um, but... I think what excites me is the fact that, yes, we can do virtual events and the quality of our virtual events are insane. Um, we have we have proper production values. We have TV-style straps um, going across the screen. They're really, really high quality. 
um, audiences have been amazing as well. But the thing that's really caught my eye, and I think Forbes Women is a good example of this. Mm-hmm. So Forbes Women is normally a summit that would happen in New York with super high profile people, you know, all the big names, maybe 300 people in the room. You'd have to fight to get a ticket. It'd be really tough, very exclusive. And at the end of last year, um, we had to put the event virtual and it, we actually decided to open it up. And what we ended up with was 25,000 attendees. Wow. A completely different ball game. And actually some of the partners, for example, Audi that, that partnered with us for that um, and EY as well, were actually completely bowled away. And it was a really big lesson for us as well, because we're talking so much at the moment in the world. You know, there's been a lot of trends happening outside the pandemic, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement as well, and trans lives. And there's been a lot of social movements going on. And actually, the thing that's really caught my attention and makes me enthusiastic for the, the next year as well is this idea that we can continue to find a hybrid. And so events can always have a virtual element to them. But we should be doing that to enable inclusivity. Yeah. We should be able to, to get more people virtually in the room, whether it's that they're not able physically to make it there or they can't afford to be there as well. And that cannot be a bad thing. If we're sharing more great ideas out there, I think in many ways, Ted, an organization that I admire hugely, recognized that years ago by putting all those talks online that we yeah. all watch now. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas I, I've been to Ted physically myself. And while it's an amazing experience, and yes, it's worth it um, to pay that money if you can afford it, um, isn't it amazing that we now can use technology to spread that? So I think it'll be things like that as a small example over the next year where we actually look at what we've done and how we've adapted and we try and still make it to our advantage for the future. So are you looking on the next 12 months positively? Yes. Um, I always try to be an optimist, um, but I think this, this whole this this whole year has been a great reset for us, both personally and professionally. And I, I think it's as we learn to come back to the office, as we learn to function as normal professionals again, you know, and do our commutes, I think it's it's been an opportunity for us all to reevaluate our priorities and that's and that's both on a personal level but also for our partners as well and i think something that i've really enjoyed watching um at a company like forbes and i think we we are so proud of is actually that partners started to really double down and invest in trusted partnerships with trusted brands like forbes you know we're we're a brand that's been around a really long time we're a trusted brand. People know what we stand for. And actually, we can deliver not just the trust, um, but we can also deliver the innovative solutions as well. And so I think the future for us really does look bright for the next year. And I, I am optimistic. And uh, it sounds really cheesy, but I'm just going to say it that um, teaching part time, honestly, um, the thing about teaching is every year um, you get older and they're the same age. And it makes <laughs> you very, um, very aware of your aging. Um but honestly, when I look at, I, I was so scared and I was so nervous about teaching um, an entire year virtually and um, mm-hmm. through Zoom. Um, and the way that they just took to it completely, it, it just doesn't even phase them, you know, going into breakout rooms, getting on with it. You know, my students, I never met my students for the last academic year. Um, that was a really strange thing for me. But the way that they so enthusiastically embraced everything and are still now going out there and getting jobs, it really gives me a lot of hope. And I think we we really should not underestimate the next generation. I think they are smarter and faster and more adaptable than we ever 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 imagined. Oh wow! Oh well, thank you. That I'm 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 feeling all positive for the next year already. Thank you for that. It's been lovely chatting to you, Alex. Really interesting to hear about 
about the changes going on. And um, yeah, well, I think we should get back together around in 12 months time and, and find out what's happened. Thank you very much. Thank you. The World Media Group is an alliance of leading international media organisations that connects brands with highly engaged, influential audiences in the context of trusted and renowned journalism. I'm delighted to have as members The Atlantic, BBC News Global, Bloomberg Media, Business Insider, The Economist, Forbes, Fortune, Financial Times, National Geographic, New York Times, Reuters, Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. It is a great honor to work with all of them. Thank you.